Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jack Lapsley. I teach Old Testament here at the seminary, and I'm also currently serving as the academic dean. Thank you for joining us this afternoon for Professor Mark Smith's inaugural lecture as the Helena Professor of Old Testament Literature and Exegesis, a position he has held at PTS since 2016, and we're just now ready for the inaugural lecture. <laughs> After earning multiple degrees from distinguished institutions, including Harvard, Catholic University of America, and Yale, where he earned his PhD, Professor Smith went on to teach at Yale, St. Paul Seminary, St. Joseph's University, and has served as visiting professor at the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome and Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He is also most recently the Skirball Professor Emeritus of Hebrew Bible and Ancient Near Eastern Studies at New York University. If you did a search in our library catalog, you would see that Professor Smith is the author of scads of books and articles. And I use scads in its technical sense to mean over 15 books and over 100 articles. And that's after I weeded out a few works by the Mark S. Smith, who is a Cambridge church historian, who also pops up in the search. <clears throat> so Professor Smith's most recent books are Where the Gods Are, published in 2016, and The Genesis of Good and Evil in 2019. He is currently working on a commentary on judges in the Hermeneia series. His co-author for that commentary is Hebrew Bible scholar and archaeologist Dr. Liz Locke-Smith, who I think is here. I saw her come in. Oh, oh thank you. Thank you. Um, who happens to be married to Mark and who also is a treasured member of our community. We look forward to the appearance of the judge's commentary, the first volume in 2021, I'm told, possibly, which will no doubt be a definitive word on judges, but we also look forward to its companion volume, How to Write a Commentary with Your Spouse and Stay Married. <laughs> <laughs> She's writing that one, okay. Mark Smith's intellectual and theological interests and expertise are as wide-ranging as I have ever seen in a scholar. And his knowledge of the ancient Near East and the Bible is encyclopedic. And so, we look forward to learning more today about the question, what have Canaan and Babylon to do with Israel, the problem of ancient Near Eastern divinity in the biblical Godhead? After Professor Smith's lecture, there will be a reception right out here in the foyer to which everyone is warmly invited. Please join me in welcoming Professor Mark Smith for his inaugural lecture. I'm deeply honored to be here. I'm grateful to be alive and to serve as a faculty member here at the seminary. I thank my faculty colleagues, especially those in Old Testament, for your learning and your support. I'm also grateful to the seminary for its ongoing support. From the bottom of my heart, I also thank our students. I'm nothing here without our students. Finally, I'm eternally grateful to my wonderful, 
often brilliant wife, Liz, and to God. Indeed, this topic that I'll address tonight has occupied my life of study and teaching, which is ever a faculty member's prayer offered to God week in and week out. A major piece of my study has been what I would like to address today, namely what we may discern of the impacts of cultures outside of Israel on Israel's Bible and its God. Divinity of ancient Near Eastern cultures is hardly the whole story of the Israelite Godhead, but it is a major strand in the story, one that I think is often underappreciated in biblical and theological studies. I suspect this is largely because of a perceived assumption that the God of biblical revelation is separate from all other gods and that we need to keep it that way in our analyses and in our thinking. Indeed, at first glance, this question of ancient Near Eastern divinity in the biblical Godhead should sound like a non-question, perhaps like Tertullian's question that my main title echoes. This church father famously asked, what indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Hand out page one. What concord is there between the academy and the church? The issue was not a new one in Christian theology, as the further sources footnoted on page one show. The Bible arguably poses a similar question, what have Canaan and Babylon to do with Israel? To judge from the biblical books of Deuteronomy, Joshua and Judges, the answer seems clear. Israel originally had nothing to do with Canaan or its gods and is to have nothing to do with them. Several biblical passages, such as Psalm 137, could follow suit for Babylon. Quote, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat, we wept as we remembered Zion. In this psalm, Babylon and Zion, in other words, Jerusalem, are polar opposites. Yet, as scholars have long recognized, Israel's entanglements with Canaan and Mesopotamia were highly complex. For a long time, biblical scholars have compared the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible with sources from Egypt and Mesopotamia, with inscriptions closer to Israel and also inside Israel. Scholarship has long compared the Bible and the ancient Near East, or set them in oppositional terms as the Bible versus the ancient Near East. This approach elevated the Bible over and against extra-biblical sources and assumed Israel's distinctiveness and superiority. This approach strongly distinguished Yahweh from all other gods and goddesses on various grounds, some of which are listed at the top of page two of your handout. This line of modern scholarship echoed the Bible's own differentiation of other deities from Israel's main god, that I noted in the books of Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. At the same time, this approach missed what any number of biblical passages show about the convergence of other deities with Israel's God. The academic field of biblical studies has witnessed a major paradigm shift in understanding the Bible in the ancient Near East. I repeat, the Bible in the ancient Near East. Noting that the Bible, as well as Israel, belongs to and is in the ancient Near East. Today, this formulation of the general perspective, the Bible in the ancient Near East, has become rather standard, and I would generally endorse this view as a cultural historian. Still, in many cases, the evidence can be, can be read more strongly as the ancient Near East in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. 
The same point applies to ancient Near Eastern divinity in the Israelite Godhead, which for me goes to the heart of theology. More specifically, the record of the impact of the ancient Near East on and in the Bible may be interpreted theologically. God chose to speak to and through Israel through its experience of other cultures and their gods and goddesses. Now, this is the opposite of the idea that I noted earlier, namely that the biblical God had nothing to do with other gods and goddesses. My view could sound disorienting to any number of us dedicated to the service of this one God, but I assure you, God does not need our scholarly protection. What is needed is greater scholarly understanding of the complexity of God in our ancient sources. Being open to exploring the impact of ancient Near Eastern gods and goddesses on the biblical representation of God is arguably a matter of being open to the incarnational side of revelation in the scriptures. Moreover, students of the Bible, whether scholars or not, always remain aware that this God was and is vaster and more intimate to humanity than any scholarly analyses, perceptions, or historical reconstructions, including my own. We are told God's love does not end, but we are told in 1 Corinthians 13.8, as for knowledge, it will come to an end. Today, I would like to sketch out the impact of three different regions on Israel's conceptualization of its God in the Bible. Turn to your map on page two. The first region is located to the south of what would become ancient Israel in the area of what is marked as a dome on your map on page two. The second region is the larger coastal area that we sometimes call the Levant or Canaan, running from the coast of modern-day Syria down through modern-day Lebanon and down through modern-day Israel and Palestine. The third region is Mesopotamia, located primarily in modern-day Iraq and northern Syria. So let's begin with part one of our story at the top of page three of your handout, with three features that lie at the very beginnings of the story of God as told in the Bible. These three features are, number one, the name of the God, yud heh vav often pronounced Yahweh. Number two, the tradition of this God's home at Sinai, also called Edom, Seir, Paran, and Taman, and number three, the exodus from Egypt. These three items have very few and only controversial reflexes outside of the Bible, in contrast to the next two parts of our story. So let's begin with the name of Yahweh. In Exodus 3.14, the Bible interprets the name with the first person forms in Echia Asher Echia, which is wonderfully translated, I am who I am. Sounds like Popeye. I don't think that's my God. I am who I I am what I am. I will be what or who I will be, etc. Because these forms are uh, polyvalent in Hebrew. The verse offers an interpretation of the divine name as the divine one, perhaps to be with. Actually, just a verse, two verses earlier, he says, I will be with you. So I rather, if I interpret contextually, I rather think that what the divine name, at least as interpreted in this context, is it means to be with, that is present to those who know and invoke this name. 
Given its place in Scripture, this meaning might be regarded as theologically defining for Christians. However, it is unclear that the verb to be is the source, original source of the divine name, especially since the divine name is attested also in a short form with only three letters, yud heh vav in, in biblical personal names such as David's son Adoniyahu. Of course, it's also attested apparently in a two-letter form, as in the English Alleluia, Hebrew Hallelujah, praise Yah. Accordingly, Exodus 3.14 may be providing an inner Israelite interpretation of the divine name. The biblical scholar Graham Davies notes in reference to Exodus 3.14, quote, What I wish to call exegesis of the divine name comes just before the occurrence of the divine name itself, end quote. We might say for this biblical passage, inner biblical interpretation of the divine name, that is what Davies calls exegesis, is revelatory for the divine name. Now think about it for a second. Interpretation within the Bible is revelatory. We usually think of there's the Bible, and now we're going to interpret it. But someone beat us to the punch already in the composition of the text. We might also say that the etymology of the divine name remains a scholarly mystery, and thus the God with this name remains something of a mystery as well. The divine name has been identified with a somewhat similar looking name, a place name known from two Egyptian lists of place names. These lists associate the place name something that looks like YHW, with a group of non-Israelite people known as the Shasu. You don't have to know who the Shasu are for today, but test you on it later. The identification of the place name with the god Yahweh is debated, yet if correct, it would provide an early comparison for the divine name outside of the Bible. Now, the place that this name refers to is not in Egypt, though. This is the part that I like. It seems to lie in the desert region to the east of Egypt and south of what would become Israel. This hypothesis would rather fit well with the second of the three major data about Israel, namely the name of Sinai. Sinai is associated with two place names, Seir and Adom, in Judges 4-5. to This is on page 3 of your handout. This particular Poetic snippet is perhaps the oldest witness to Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible. O Yahweh, when you went out from Seir and you marched from Adom's highland, the earth shook, the heavens streamed, also the clouds streamed with water. (laughs) Mountains shook before Yahweh, the one of Sinai, before Yahweh, the God of Israel. The third piece of information in the Bible's early story about God is the exodus from Egypt. Like Sinai, this event is mentioned many times in the Hebrew Bible, yet unlike the traditions associated with Sinai or the divine name, the exodus is not mentioned in any pre-monarchic context in the Bible and nowhere outside of the Bible in the biblical period. The idea of the exodus appears as a major political tradition, page 4, of your handout, at the royal founding of the northern kingdom of Israel in 1 Kings 12, 28, quote, behold your gods who brought you from the land of Egypt. Now, if this tradition is authentic historically, and that's a big if, 
the way 1 Kings 12 uses the Exodus implies that it was an older pre-monarchic tradition. If you use it, probably you're not just making it up. At least that's what I think in this case. Two monarchic texts seem to attribute the, ex the Exodus not to Yahweh, but to the god Ale. This is in Numbers chapter 33, 22, and 24, 8, also on page 4 of your handout. Quote, Ale, who brought them slash him, these are the variants in the two verses, referring to Israel, out from Egypt, has horns like the horns of a bull. Isn't that what you always think of of Yahweh as having horns like a bull? Ale here is usually translated God, so the NRSV. They are the same word, basically. But it obscures the old tradition of ale here. In fact, ale himself is known as bull ale several times in texts from the ancient site of Ugarit that we will be discussing a bit later. We may wonder, based on these two verses then, which God was the original God of the Exodus? Was it Yahweh, as in most of biblical tradition, and is assumed by 1 Kings 12, or was it Ael, as we see in the book of Numbers? Whatever the answer, we may be sensitive to the fact that it is most difficult to get further back to the tradition of the Exodus. But of course, I try. For the background of the Exodus, many scholars have focused on the Egyptian names of Moses, Aaron, how do you say this in English? Phineas, Pinchas, occupational hazard. None of these three names is related to a regular word in Hebrew, what scholars sometimes call a productive verbal root in Hebrew, one of the rules of thumb for loan words from other languages into Hebrew. In fact, the explanation given to the name of Moses in Exodus 2.10 is regarded by all scholars as a secondary folk etymology. Now, some scholars think that these Egyptian names could have derived from a later period, and I do think that that's quite possible. But I am struck by another curious passage that might support memory of an early Egyptian background. And this is the priestly lineage of Moses associated with Egypt and tied to the shrine at Shiloh in 1 Samuel 2, 27 to 28. We're still on page four of the handout. 1 Samuel 2 associates the Exodus not with the Israelites in general, as we might expect from elsewhere in the Bible. Instead, this passage ties the Exodus specifically to the priesthood at Shiloh. Quote, a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Koamar Adonai, thus the Lord has said, I revealed myself to the family of your ancestor in Egypt when they were slaves to the house of Pharaoh. I chose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, etc. This passage is unlike the revelation associated with Moses in Exodus 3, which refers to the exodus of the whole people, not a specific group or lineage. Here, the selection of Moses begins a priestly line that runs through to Eli and the priesthood at Shiloh. Indeed, one of Eli's two sons is named Pinchas, an Egyptian name that we've just noted. The other son, Chofni, likewise has an Egyptian name, meaning tadpole. Don't you just want to name your kid that? Thus, an old tradition of the Exodus was perhaps centered on these Egyptian names, belonging to the tradition of the Levitical priesthood at the site of Shiloh. 
On the hypothetical reading that I'm entertaining here, the priestly or more specifically Levitical tradition of the Exodus became all Israel's, perhaps. These three traditions may be located within the larger ancient Near Eastern paradigms for divinity. The God that marches from Sinai, Adom, Seir, in association with precipitation in Judges 5, verses 4 to 5, conforms fairly well to warrior gods known elsewhere, such as Baal Hadad. The military type of God informs the representation of the God of the Exodus in prose narrative about the plagues aimed in Egypt, C.F. Dever and Reshef that march as part of Yahweh's military retinue in Habakkuk 3. The God named Dever means plague, or pestilence, actually. A similar military God appears also in the poetic celebration over Egypt in Exodus 15, representing the God of the Exodus as Israel's family God. Remember, he's, I will praise the God of my fathers, or the God of my fathers, and I will praise him. The poem echoes further the divine appearances made to Moses in Exodus 3. As the apogee of the Exodus story, the poem in Exodus 15, at the bottom of page 4 of your handout, combines military images and the personal God in the opening verses. Let me sing to Yahweh, for he is greatly exalted. Horse and chariot he is thrown into the sea. My strength and my song might, if I, if I use the word play on Zimrat. My strength and song might is Yah. He has become my deliverance. This is my God and I will enshrine him. The God of my father and I will exalt him. Adonai ish milchama. The Lord is a God, is, the Lord is a man of war. Adonai Shmo, the Lord is his name. The combination of family or personal God on the one hand and storm God on the other is not particularly surprising as different gods may serve as both the family God and the warrior God. For example, the storm warrior God Baal in the Ugaritic story of Akkad. By contrast, the divine name is the one feature that remains particularly elusive. Compared with what would be said of Yahweh later in the Bible, the name remains both revealed and unrevealed, known yet still quite unknown, in other words, a mystery. Let us turn to part two of our story, the Ugaritic texts and the Hebrew Bible. Soon after the first Ugaritic texts from the Mediterranean coastal site of Syria, it's, about, it's located about 100 miles north of Beirut, it's on your map, after the first texts were discovered in 1928, their similarities with the Hebrew Bible were almost immediately recognized. There was no ignoring the very substantial repertoire of features shared by the Ugaritic texts in the Hebrew Bible, including language, poetic style, and specific literary material and material culture. Indeed, early biblical Hebrew itself compares more closely to Ugaritic, sometimes than it does to biblical Hebrew later in the Persian and Hellenistic periods. Something that's often lost on people because they say, well, that's a different culture, so we don't compare it. But if you look, it, old biblical Hebrew poetry looks a lot more like some Ugaritic stuff than it does like Hebrew in the Persian period. 
played biblical Hebrew. We make these cultural separations at our scholarly risk. As noted at the top of page five of the handout, the literary and religious features shared by the Ugaritic text in the Bible include not only general parallels, but also some of the same names. Names are very specific and concrete. The very name of Israel itself. The names of the gods, Ael, Baal, and Asherah, even some of their titles. Baal's epithet, writer of the clouds, etc. This is not to say that some of these shared features in Ugaritic in the Bible do not have an earlier or wider ancient Near Eastern context prior to what we see in Ugaritic. However, it's from Baal. However, the names given to these features belong not to Mesopotamia, but to the Levantine cultural context shared by Ugaritic and the Bible. The names are very specific. They are the specific cultural markers that Ugarit and the Bible share, but not elsewhere. The name of Israel, Yisrael, not Yisrael, not Yisrael, not Yisrael, contains the theophoric element, the God name element of the God Ael, Yisrael, who was a major god at Ugarit. The god Ael is perceptible in several Israelite sources. The tradition of Ael in Israel appears in Genesis 49.25 on page 5 of your handout. This biblical verse pairs the divine father with another figure, figure called breasts and womb, whom many scholars see as a reference to a goddess. More specifically, Asherah is probably the best candidate for this female figure, given not only her relationship to Ael in the Ugaritic text, but also given the later mostly critical attention to the Asherah symbol in the Bible. Genesis 49.25 is hardly the only older witness to Ale in the Bible. I've already mentioned the poems in Numbers 23 and 24, and especially remarkable, the association of the Exodus tradition with Ale. Many other biblical passages bear the imprint of older tradition about Ale. And the parade example for some scholars is Exodus 6.3, at the top of page 6 of your handout. This verse suggests that as in the very name of Israel, Ale was not only identified with Yahweh, but Ale may have also have been an early god of Israel. It's Yisrael, after all. When Moses meets Yahweh for the first time in the book of Exodus, Yahweh tells Moses about his earlier appearances that the deity made to the patriarchs in Genesis. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but I did not make myself known to them by my name, Yahweh. According to this passage, Yahweh was not known as Yahweh to the patriarchs, including Jacob himself, later called Israel. This literary picture parallels the historical reconstructions about the name of Israel as originally an ale name. It is quite notable to think that the Bible itself recognizes that at one time, Israel's God was not known by the name Yahweh, but by a different name, and a name quite well known outside of Israel. Stated differently, early Israel shared a worldview centered on the God Ale, whom its neighbors also knew, and perhaps before much of its devotion to Yahweh. Interestingly, the Bible does not polemicize against Ale unlike against Baal. Instead, it incorporates this God. In religious terms, we might say that Ale and Yahweh were identified. 
From a biblical perspective, it may appear that Yahweh, quote-unquote, absorbed ale. However, the opposite view, that ale incorporated Yahweh, is no less possible from a historical perspective. Other traces of Levantine gods and goddesses are discernible in the Bible. The imprint of the goddess Asherah was perhaps subtle, but no less profound in the figure of personified woman wisdom. After all, they're both associated with a tree of life, as in Proverbs 3.18. And that passage loves its wordplay on the same root, same looking root, as the root for the goddess's name. All her, all her ways are mitushar, olive shin resh. This point also applies to Baal. Already I've mentioned his title, Writer of the Clouds. And we also know the names of his enemies, Leviathan, and other enemies. Those are Yahweh's enemies in the Bible. These traces of different deities and the constellation of motifs in Yahweh point to Israel's incorporation of their features into what we might call the Israelite Godhead. Now, this process transpired in Israel's monarchic period environment of what might, has been called pantheon reduction. This is not a cooking tip. That is, we see a reduction compared with the rather high number of gods and goddesses that you guard in the late Bronze Age, hundreds. This pantheon reduction focused on Yahweh as Israel's national god, much like Israel's Levantine neighbors that had their own national gods, as expressed in Judges chapter 11, verse 24. I think this is on your handout. In this verse, the Israelite leader Jephthah asks his Ammonite counterpart, should you not possess what Kamosh your God gives you to possess? And should we not possess everything that Yahweh our God has given us to possess? End quote. Here we see cross-cultural recognition of another national God. Deuteronomy 32, 8-9, in the Greek version of the Septuagint and in the Dead Sea Scrolls, reflects this indigenous theory of national gods, and you've got the quote on page 6. According to this passage, Yahweh's inheritance within the scheme of things is Israel, while the other gods received their own territorial allotments as their inheritance within the world. All of these gods, Yahweh and the other gods, are all called sons of Elyon, perhaps Ale in the earlier tradition. We know the title El Elyon from elsewhere. And they belong to Israel's own early world theology prior to the invasions of Mesopotamia. Something to think about. So now let's turn to the third and final part of our story, Mesopotamia and the Bible. While both Ugart and Mesopotamia show deep impacts of the ancient Near East on the Bible, how they do so vary considerably. Ugart offers a cultural and religious backdrop for the Hebrew Bible. It is culturally and religiously inside the Levant with ancient Israel. Mesopotamia is a very different story in the first millennium, where Mesopotamia represents invasion from the outside. Beginning in the 9th century, Israel encountered the emerging empires of Mesopotamia. The first major empire was Assyria, which would invade and defeat the northern kingdom of Israel in 722, and then conquer the southern kingdom of Judah in 701. Israel was supplanted by a second Mesopotamian empire, Babylonia, then in the late 7th century, which defeated Jerusalem and Judah three times in the years 597 
586, and 582, once again issuing in significant deportations to Mesopotamia. All of these events issued in a complex engagement of Mesopotamian culture and ancient Israel. Now the engagements of Mesopotamian Israel might seem at first glance to reinforce the traditional scholarly categories of Israel and the ancient Near East, or the Bible and ancient Near Eastern texts. And that certainly applies when we look at older Mesopotamian influence prior to invasions of Assyria and Babylonia. And here I'm thinking of the biblical traditions of the flood, which look very early and are known even in the Levant from pre-biblical, from before Israel. Similarly, early biblical law, notably the comparison that long, has long been made between the covenant code in Exodus 21 to 23 and the code of Hammurabi. These kinds of influences may be more general long before the invasion of Assyria. Yet, as noted at the bottom of page six of your handout, with Mesopotamia in the first millennium, it is more accurate to think of the ancient Near East coming to Israel, invading, conquering, and occupying Israel. Various signs of Mesopotamian impact on Israelite culture are clear from archaeology and iconography, as well as lexicon, including religious terminology, not to mention the discovery of, I think it's around 15 or 19 Akkadian texts, Neo-Assyrian texts in ancient Israel. And possibly three more, although they're sort of debated, during the Neo-Babylonian period. As noted at the top of page seven of your handout, the Bible also provides two striking examples of Mesopotamian gods and goddesses. I mean, they're in the Bible. One is called the Tammuz, mentioned in Ezekiel 8.14. Uh, this Demuzi uh, in Mesopotamian texts. And the other is the goddess known only in the Bible by her title, the Queen of Heaven, in Jeremiah 7 and 44. This Queen of Heaven has been identified with a variety of goddesses, some indigenous to the Levant, such as Astarte, but some Mesopotamian component is indicated by her association in Jeremiah 7 and 44 with a sort of baked good. We're not going to have any, any of these for the reception. We should, but... It's idolatry, so we won't be doing that today. Uh, some Mesopotamian component is indicated by her association with a sort of baked good uh, re represented by the Hebrew word kavan, itself derived from the Akkadian word kamanu. So we actually, loan words are culture. Loan words are religion. Language is culture. So we see the footprints of Mesopotamian impact not just into Israel, but all over the Bible itself. The Bible's full of Akkadian loanwords. In addition, pictorial evidence for the goddess Ishtar, who is associated with this kind of baked good, pictorial evidence for her is also known in Israel. In this particular case, a that is of, of this goddess, a convergence of language, Religious iconography and biblical texts all point to this Mesopotamian goddess's intercultural impact within Israel. Mesopotamia shows the ancient Near East in the Bible, also in the Bible's literary production, thanks to the many Akkadian loanwords found in the Bible. Now, the complex mediation processes of Mesopotamian impact on ancient Israel and the Bible are not entirely clear, yet 
the influence and engagement are clear. Because of these impacts, Mesopotamian empire looks somewhat like what we might call Israel's, quote, hegemonic reference culture, issuing in religious counter-responses in Deuteronomy and in Deuteronomistic literature and Joshua judges 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. Any standard treatment of Deuteronomy today will tell you that it is it not only generally responds to the Assyrian religious ideology, but even picks up specific tropes and wordings from Assyrian treaties, most notably um, uh, the so-called Vassal Treaty of Esarhaddon. The Mesopotamian impact on the representation of the deity was hardly restricted to the deities I've already mentioned. A common view held today by historians of religion is that Yahweh as king over the universe represents Israel's response to Mesopotamian empire. Hence, in the book of Deuteronomy, it is Yahweh, you're often taught in, in courses, I don't know what they say in 2101, I've never taken the course or taught it, but Deuteronomy is often taught as being modeled on the treaty format based on Assyrian vassal treaties. And in this, it's not just an interesting ancient Near Eastern parallel, it's a counter-hegemonic response to say that the real emperor in the universe is Yahweh, not the Assyrian king. Moreover, where an earlier Levantine theology, as in Judges 11.24, the Jephthah, or Deuteronomy 32.8-9 that we've already noted, they could hold that other comparable kingdoms had their own national gods like Israel, the one-god theism of Mesopotamian empire gods would suggest a new one-god theism for Israel's earlier reduced pantheon. In other words, what became monotheism? Mesopotamians' one-god theism is reflected in a number of different manners. In the Akkadian text, known from its first line as, I will praise the Lord of Wisdom, the god Marduk is so far above all the other deities that he pierces into their innermost thoughts, but they cannot even perceive him. Other texts focus on Marduk and sometimes other deities as the one god above all other gods, but also in whom they have their reality. For example, the text given to you on pages 7 to 8 on the handout, in which each god is listed as one function of the god Marduk. Elsewhere, other gods are represented as aspects of Marduk. I always like to read this. This is actually a quote. Sin is your divinity. That's the moon god. Sounds wicked, doesn't it? Anu is your sovereignty. <laughs> the deities as a group, then, are rendered as the body parts of yet another soup of other super deities, such as there's an address by Ninurta. I think this is on your handout. Oh, Lord, your face is the sun god. Your hair is Aya. Would you like to hear that in chapel sometime? Oh, Lord. The Mesopotamian text, known as Enuma Elish, literally went on high, sometimes I think mistakenly called the epic of creation or the creation epic, constitutes a massive, massive narrative hymn to Marduk's incomparability relative to the other deities. That's what it's all about. Thanks to these and other texts, we can situate divinity in Israel. 
within a larger landscape. Under invasion from an empire with its empire god, Israel's national god would become re-expressed as an empire god. From the perspectives of biblical authors in the 6th century, and here I would include Deuteronomy 4, 2nd Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the priestly work of the Pentateuch, the stock value of gods other than Yahweh relative to the people that they patronize, it dropped to zero. While their empires loomed massively in the world of Israelite religious literati. So the empires are huge, their deities are zero. This shift seems to be part of a broader perception in the chain, this is from an Israelite perspective, their perception in the changing values between divinity and people. The loss of the power of the other gods corresponds to the loss of Israel's power. Well, the heightening of, Israel, of Yahweh's power corresponds to the heightened power of human empires. I, I like my stock market analogy. You have, this isn't in my text. You have four portfolios, and they're changing. Yahweh, other deities, other empires, Israel. From an Israelite perspective, what are these four portfolios doing? Yahweh's is really going up. The other deities? They're going down, way down, zero. They're worthless. The other empires, huge. <laughs> and Israel, nada. So what happens? The other God's portfolio, you chuck it. It's worthless. What's left? You reshuffle your portfolio. You now have Yahweh at the top. You have the other empires, you have the empires in the middle, and you have Israel below them. So now you have a worldview in which it's possible to say, as Isaiah 10.4 says, Assyria, the rod of my anger. That God uses the nations in its relations to Israel, and it's going to use Israel also, no less, for understanding who God is in the world. That's what the future from the 6th century out looks like. Let me close with three thankfully brief comments. First, how does our look at the ancient Near East in the Bible affect how we think about God in the Bible? From a historical perspective, as Israel brings the ancient Near East into its Bible, so it marks its representations of divinity. From the perspective of Revelation, wherever God brings Israel, Israel goes in its understanding of divinity. Theologically, God, in effect, has brought ancient Near Eastern conceptualizations of divinity to Israel and into its Bible. God is vaster than any sum of human experience. As the repository of the first theologically sanctioned witnesses to God in Jewish and Christian and Muslim tradition, the Bible requires Christians to appreciate the vast mystery of God and the greatness of the means that God chose in order to bring humanity into contact with God. That includes the positive use of non-Israelite religious thinking and experience. Number two, looking back on divinity in ancient Israel, it is not primarily a story about origins or its end. It is not primarily a story about an exalted, sublime notion of original monotheism, which wasn't so original in the first place, or about the eschaton and divine exaltation at the end of days. 
It is no less about the many stories in between, about the great changes in Israel's experience of itself, its world, and its God. Divinity in the Bible is divine paradox in motion, shrouded in mysterious beginnings, middles, and ends. None fully determinative for any religious tradition, and none, I suspect, fully grasped by any religious tradition. Third and finally, our ancient sources, biblical or not, are revelatory in different ways, and our deity was revealed in part through the prisms of other gods and goddesses. Thus, to return to Tertullian's question posed at the outset, Canaan and Babylon have everything to do with God. And yet, the Hebrew Bible and its God received and enduring so long after the demise of Canaan and Babylon and their gods now have nothing to do with them. And Israel knew that. Our God about God, our story about God today is also indicative of how the field of biblical studies is moving and changing and also how God willing, the church is moving and changing. The biblical story about God is likewise instructive for the attitude and perspective for how we in the church face the world. In the end, it remains the important work of faith communities not to simplify the Bible or its God, but to embrace the Bible's revelatory motion and complexity, as well as its intimations of the mystery of its God then and now. Thank you.